0: Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, the keynote address from the 2007 Going West Festival, historian Tony Simpson tucks into 19th century colonial food traditions in Aotearoa and examines their impact on our cuisine and our cultural identity. Late last year, Naomi and I were in Wellington on a fairly important business meeting, which I think was a big wine, uh, whiskey tasting I was running for Glen Gary. And <laughs> we came across this advert for a guy who was talking about the wife of Bath, Renaissance cooking, Omikai and that was intriguing. This guy was going to weave all of these together in one spellbinding erudite tale. He did, and it was Tony Simpson. Tony, welcome, thank you very much. Thank
1: you for that, Murray. <clears throat> I always listened very carefully to how people introduce me after I had a terrible experience once, many years ago, introducing myself to some people. I'd, at that stage, I was uh, Secretary of Actors' Equity, the National Actors' Union. <clears throat> and I was invited to go to the Soviet Union, as it then was, uh, as a guest of the Cultural Workers' Union. And one evening, I found myself on a train from Moscow to Minsk. And this is going to sound like one of those stories about an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotsman, but the compartment that I was in was occupied by a German who spoke no Russian and no English, a Russian who spoke no English and no German, and myself who spoke no Russian, English, of course, and a language similar to German called extremely bad German. (laughs) And I managed to work out that this guy, the German, was a theater director from Dresden. And he was also extremely drunk, by the way. Uh, and I thought I'd better introduce myself in extremely bad German, so I did. And he went and sat as far away from me as he possibly could. And he wouldn't speak to me for the rest of this 12-hour journey. And some years later, I was talking to a German friend of mine. I told him this story. And he said, well, what did you say to me? And I told him, and he laughed, and he said, "I think it was a really bad idea to introduce yourself as the secretary of the New Zealand Gigolos Union." (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to outline to you today why it was that until the 1960s we in New Zealand largely ate meat and two vegetables for our stodgy main dish with the stodgy putting to follow. And if you don't think that's of any significance to a social historian, just consider this. Eating is one of the very few things that we all do every day of our lives, if we can. That is to say from the moment we are born till the moment we die. And something so utterly central to our existence is also going to be absolutely central to our culture. It's important that we should be aware why we do what we do if we're going to understand that culture. And food is no exception to that rule. But let me begin not with some cholesterol, but with some raw data. Between 1861 and 1881, 556,156 immigrants are recorded as entering New Zealand. And because of a very high because of an accident of history, a very high proportion of those who came during that period were distressed rural labourers. And that was because some important changes in the British agricultural industry, which had in their turn flowed from the internationalisation of food production, had led to a large surplus of such workers in Britain. And this as always, in an unregulated labour market, had depressed wages severely, and when their recourse to industrial action failed, these men, turned to other expedients, the most important of which was immigration. So many of those who came to New Zealand in what is best described as our heroic period of immigration were from an agricultural background comprising the laborers themselves and, of course, their families. And this meant that they brought a culture with them that enshrined an approach to food production and consumption. And this had a key influence on the nature of our local cuisine, in particular, it was an approach which focused on small-scale production for domestic consumption. We're talking here about what is loosely described as a market garden culture. But as you'll see as I go along, it had a much broader influence on the nature of the culture we have eventually emerged as eventually emerged as we have it in this country. Because these agricultural workers also brought another cultural element with them. They, did, they were determined they were not going to allow the creation of the social relationships they had suffered in Britain and which had led them to contemplate emigration in the first place. As the historian James Bellich has sagely remarked, no one emigrated to New Zealand to be worse off. And that included the impoverishment of their diet, which had been one of the consequences of the agricultural depression that drove them here in the first place. That included some significant notions of what their ordinary lives should have been like if they hadn't been deprived. At least two of them were things they had experienced in an attenuated form. And these things were the Harvest Home Feast and the Farmer's Ordinary. Let's take those in turn. The Harvest Home Feast in 19th century England was usually held by tradition any time between the end of August and the middle of October. And as its name suggests, it marked the completion of the harvest of the year. So its date reflected the area of the country and the state of the weather during that year. If you're in the southern part of the country, it's more likely to be later in the year. It's a very old festival dating from at least the Middle Ages and was known as Lammas. As far as we can establish, it marked the first church communion service using bread from the newly harvested corn. And so it may very well have been originally a pre-Christian festival like Christmas itself and a number of others, which were simply taken over by the early church, converted to Christianity, as it were. In essence, it was a religious ceremony followed by a feast in celebration of the fact that with the harvest in the community, having been gathered in, that community was going to survive for another year. Bear in mind that we're talking here about a Europe in which the threat of famine was ever-present every year for centuries. So it was a very important thing to mark that you'd got the harvest in. These harvest home feasts were usually provided by the local landowners and could be quite lavish. But more to the point, they involved the consumption of quite a lot of meat, which these rural laborers never saw, by and large, at any other time of the year. When I was making my notes for this talk, I came across a reminiscence from a place called Haddenham in Buckinghamshire, which is worth quoting. And the person said, No institution was more popular or more deeply rooted in our village sentiment than our annual feast, which fell on the first Sunday after the 19th of September. As the lack of enough to eat was the normal experience of the poor a century ago, so a day given to fill the belly with good food was a delight. The ancient celebration was really of that character, a literal feast of good food and drink, with the mirth that goes with these things. Well, actually, as it happens, quite a lot of the mirth in question was fuelled by very large quantities of beer and cider in the 19th century, and the local clergy sometimes tried to stamp it out for that reason, but they were generally unsuccessful. I'm pleased to report, and drinking also remained one of its features. So poor rural labourers who came to New Zealand were not entirely without experience of good eating. And they also had something else to remind them of what that meant. The farmers' ordinary the thing that I mentioned earlier, and which forms part of the title of this talk. Most rural areas had a local market town in which there was a weekly market to which the farmer and his labourers carted their produce for sale. The markets usually ended around midday, and the farmer would then go off to have his midday meal at a local inn. And that meal was known as the ordinary. It was essentially a fixed-price standard dinner served to anyone who had the cash. It was usually quite hearty, comprised of thick soup, a pie or savory pudding, roast meat or poultry, with vegetables and potatoes, and a sweet fruit pie and cheese. But mark that the laborers didn't get to eat in this fashion. They bought their own much more meagre lunch, and usually ate it sitting under the farmer's dray or in the inn yard. But they were very well aware of what the farmers got. But they didn't. Once the rural poor had taken the long step to emigration, those who left the British Isles had not only these contrasts fixed in their mind's eye, but the voyage to the new land itself created a further opportunity for contrasts and comparisons. If they came to New Zealand in the steerage, as most did, then they would have lived in very daily close proximity to their cabin class fellow passengers. Now, that would have been unusual because if they were still living in Britain, they would not have experienced that close living with their social betters. They would have been denied that by the concept of social distance. And they would certainly not have seen them eating their lunch. And in those circumstances, they quickly became aware of how much better the middle and upper classes fared than they did when it came to food. In fact, the contrast between the diets of steerage and cabin passengers on 19th century immigrant ships is one of the most immediate, apparent, notable features of the immigration experience. Strictly speaking, the diet of the steerage, where most of the people uh, traveled, cattle class, you can call it if you like, was regulated, and a certain amount of food, a minimum, had to be supplied as a condition of the sale of ticket. And in fact, the food supply to immigrants to New Zealand and Australia was probably better than most, partly because the journey was quite a long one and therefore had to be better conducted, but mainly because it was largely under the control of provincial and national governments or semi-official ventures such as the New Zealand Company and its various offshoots and therefore better conducted than the private business ventures, which characterised, for example, the American immigrant trade, which was really little more than an adjunct to the timber industry. If you went to America, you were carted there by some people who wanted to fill up the hold because they got a bit of money out of that and, and then they really made their money by taking timber back the other way. So you can imagine what that was like. The dietary for steerage passengers on New Zealand company vessels was actually set out in a schedule which you can read in the company publications. Uh, and of course, they emphasised how generous it was and how well people were going to eat. But it can't have been particularly exciting. If you read it through, even if it was adequate, and of course, It was then up to the passengers to prepare that food as best they could. 300 or so passengers, by the way, would cram the steerage compartment of the average immigrant ship. Uh, They were divided into messes of 10 or a dozen people. And they would depute one of their number, who was known as the mess captain, to collect the rations and then another to undertake the cooking or if there was a cook on the ship to oversee that activity to make sure there was no theft or other monkey business. That responsibility could be quite onerous, uh, as a F.W. Leighton on board the Bloomer in 1853 said, a task of no honour and very great difficulties from the various tempers you have to please. And in fact, the duties involved are described by an Edward Cousins who travelled on the Traven Corps as a boy of 10, he said. The rations were served out once a week, and meat was twice a week by the chief officer. At this function, the family was not a name but a number. In the mate's book was entered the quantity of each article to be supplied, and when the number was called out, some representative of the family was expected to step forward and take what was coming to them. And then the meat was tagged for subsequent cooking. The next step, was to carry the meat to the galley, where it was presided over by a big negro who threw them together into the boiler and left them to stew until dinner time. At about half past twelve, forty or fifty people assembled in the galley, each with a tin dish for their dinner meat. When the cook also arrived with a big three-pronged fork, thrust into the boiling mass, brought out a joint, called out the number on the disc, which was quickly claimed, and so on until the boiler was empty. Well, the chaotic scenes which ensued when the rush to the galley occurred don't have to be imagined because they were described by a John Mackenzie who travelled on the Travancore, but as a cabin passenger. He was a first class man. And who observed the rush to get food from the poop deck and described it as like so many dogs let out of their kennel to get their food. In fact, the cooking facilities themselves could leave a great deal to be desired. Galleys of necessity were quite small. And some cooks who didn't actually know usually much about cooking beyond the mass, mass, mass methods I've described would sometimes demand additional payments from the passengers if they wanted to do any cooking on the side to supplement their diet. On one ship, Deanne Wilson, on a voyage to New Zealand in 1857, the waiting time for the main meal of the day could be up to six hours. And by the way, in that particular case, there was also a pigsty on the galley roof. The set scales of rations weren't very lavish either, about a pound of chips biscuit and three quarters of fresh water a day. On alternative days, there was a half a pound of salt beef or pork and small supplementary quantities of flour, raisins, suet and pulses with sometimes potatoes, rice, sugar, butter and pickled cabbage as a safeguard against scurvy, small quantities of tea and coffee sometimes available. Dietary improved a bit as the century progressed, with some greater emphasis on fresh fruit and vegetables, but not very much. Passengers were advised in the many books published for the guidance of would-be immigrants to take their own supplementary rations with them, and most did. But the really interesting thing was the contrast between the messing arrangements for the steerage and that for the cabin passengers. Everything you read firsthand, any original source, and there's a lot of it, about 19th century immigration to New Zealand mentions that difference. And to say that the cabin ate lavishly is a considerable understatement. In 1839, the gentleman Alexander Marshbanks made the long journey to New Zealand with about 150 other immigrants on a ship called the Bengal Merchant. He said, we who are in the cabin, or the cuddy, as it's generally called at sea, consisting of 19 individuals, fared sumptuously every day, a circumstance highly creditable not only to the New Zealand company, but to the liberal captain of the ship. He worked for the New Zealand company, by the way, so he would say that. In fact, it may be said that we did little else but eat, drink, and sleep during the whole voyage. We had four meals per day. And at dinner, always had five or six dishes of fresh meat with a carte blanche of claret and other wines besides a dessert of fruit. That fresh meat on this particular journey was supplied by an astonishing 60 sheep, 21 pigs, and 900 head of poultry, which were taken on board before the ship sailed. The noise of the hungry pigs demanding food was, he added, almost equal to that of a clap of thunder. Presumably, that sound got less and less as the voyage progressed. (laughs) Detail of this ongoing feast is supplied by the diary of Martha Adams, who travelled out to Canterbury in 1850 with 16 others and sat down in the first class passengers' lounge dining table and said, we had roast beef as good as if just fresh from the hands of a country butcher, and your own cook, mashed potatoes and carrots, stewed beefsteak, boiled salmon and green gooseberries and damsons. Then we had every day four, if not five, dishes of meat at dinner, including the above with fresh pork and mutton on joints, meat pies, poultry, and curry. And the plum pudding we had today weighed, I should think, six pounds. At tea, we have fresh bread, for which the passengers find marmalade and preserves in preference to the salt butter And our breakfasts are quite abundant in proportion as our dinners. In the way of drinkables, water only is provided, but ale and porter, wine and spirits are sold, and I find lime juice and a little sugar in my water the most agreeable beverage possible." That's four substantial meals every day. All in all, her final comment that altogether, we we lead a very comfortable existence is, you would have thought, superfluous. In fact, it's interesting when you write Books, I came across it when I was first writing a book about immigration. And you read the original letters of these people, quite a lot of them, and you, you almost come to live with the people concerned. And I came to dislike Martha Adams incredibly. <laughs> she was an appalling snob. And there are numerous other comments in the same vein that you can get from all of the literature available. The contrast between the messing arrangements of the steerage and of the cabin, as I said, is one of the central lasting impressions of the experience of 19th century emigration to New Zealand is recorded in many hundreds of letters and diaries. When you put it together with another factor which impelled immigration to not only this country but to Australia and the United States and Canada in the 19th century, you get a very distinctive outcome by way of the food cultures, which developed as a result in all of those lands. And the other factor was land itself. who should own it and what they could do with it. If you study. British politics in the 19th century, you almost immediately come to realise that the land question, as it was called, was central to almost everyone's political agenda, and that one of the main factors driving immigration was the desire on the part of both the poor and those with resources but landless to get some hand, their hands on some land of their own. Various schemes to allow people in England to own small holdings were set and trained by the political radical group the Chartists, for example, Uh, which was the origin of the present-day allotment movement, still very active around the major cities in Britain, if you've been there. But that was never going to deliver land occupation to other than a tiny fraction of the landless poor, and emigration was a much more likely means of achieving it. The New Zealand social historian, Miles Fairburn in particular, has explored what that meant in 19th century New Zealand and the society which has subsequently emerged from it. Fairbairn cites quite a range of sources on the importance of getting hold of land in the new colony, not only for the gentlemen and investors who got a good deal of it by one means or another, some of it decidedly dodgy. He also explores, interestingly, the significance of land ownership to small landowners and proprietors. Among those he notes are an I.R. Cooper in 1857 who said, those who arrive in the colony without capital will, if they enjoy good health, are sober and economical in their personal expenses and are able and willing to work at any one trade as farm servants, boatmen, shepherds, or house servants, soon realize a sufficient capital to invest in land, cattle, or sheep, and thus render themselves and their children independent. Or similarly, Alexander Bathgate in 1874 in Dunedin. He says, very many working men live in their own freehold cottages, and some of the suburbs are almost exclusively filled with neat little houses owned by working men. Or well, the New Zealand Handbook, 1888, which says remarks that although an immigrant might not be assured of a fortune, yet a com- comfortable living, a home in healthy surroundings, a fair start for their children and the reasonable provision for their own future are within the reach of immigrants if they are careful and industrious. <coughs> Quite literally dozens of other writers could be cited on the same theme of the ease of small land ownership and a comfortable subsistence of those in modest circumstances. By 1885, fully 60%, two out of three adult males in New Zealand, owned a land freehold or crown leasehold. That's an astonishing statistic. And in anecdotal form, it's one of the most generally encountered commonplaces of the writing of that time about 19th century New Zealand and those who've written about it since. Letters and diaries and newspaper articles and memoirs are full of what can only be described as exclamations of astonishment by people comparing their situation in New Zealand with that from which they had left behind by emigrating, something which would have been impossible, absolutely impossible in the old country, that's to say a small holding of their own was quite readily achievable in the new. That much of this land was available because it had been inveigled or even simply stolen from the indigenous owners by all sorts of legal chicanery was not, of course, a public issue. Fairburn particularly, a very interesting historian, has interrogated the meanings of this pattern, and in particular, the use that smallholders put this land to once. They'd got it. And that turned up something very interesting. First and foremost, it was a hedge against the calamitous consequences of unemployment. In the England from which a great many of the settlers had come, your home went with your job. It was and still is called a tied cottage. Lose one, your job, you lost the other, your home. And quite a lot of those immigrants who came to New Zealand in that period had experienced that trauma. But if you owned or leased land, and had built or owned the home on it, then that didn't happen. But beyond beyond that, of course, having your own land meant that you could grow your own food more or less without restriction. Bear in mind that in 19th century rural England, although you might occupy your farmer landlord's cottage, that didn't mean you could pick the fruit in the garden or keep a pig or even plant potatoes. You had to get his permission. And sometimes he said no. In New Zealand, you could do what you damn well pleased without anyone's permission. And people very quickly did. In late 19th century New Zealand, almost everyone kept livestock, including those who lived in towns. For the better off, this not unusually meant a cow. But it certainly invariably included chickens and a pig or two. This caused problems, of course. And the town ordinances of the period are full of regulations, dealing with roosters crowing loudly in the morning, wandering stock, the effect on the water supply, and the smells associated with keeping pigs in built-up areas. I'm sure Bob is well familiar with these problems. (laughs) New Zealand's 19th century towns were actually very dirty and insanitary places. There's been a whole book recently published about that, and the struggles of our early research scientists, who were mostly doctors to get the epidemics which resulted under some sort of control. If you go and look at the 19th (coughs) century cemetery, you'll find whole families wiped out by diphtheria or scarlet fever, waterborne diseases by and large, which have now more or less disappeared. But of course, it was going to take more than a few medical men to halt the enthusiasm of families suddenly free to garden without restraint and to feed their families on the result. Sometimes when you examine the social history of the period from the middle of the 19th century up until the First World War, it seems that the working families of that time spent every spare moment they had at their disposal working on their garden. The men grew fruit and vegetables, and the women, probably because most of them were at home during the day, looked after the livestock. The agitation during the 19th century for a half-holiday on Saturdays, not having to go to work on Saturday afternoon, was probably driven in large part because people needed the time to cultivate what were quite large gardens, by our standards, when Sundays were more generally regarded as unavailable for working because of religious observances and because they'd also been set aside even in England as a day of leisure, which gardening, as those of you who have done it will know, certainly isn't. (laughs) This habit of cultivating large gardens on a domestic circumstance, persisted well into my childhood after the First World War and was a very important part of the household economy. There's a fascinating survey published by the New Zealand Department of Labor in 1892, which explored the household expenditure of working people. And although the food they ate is covered in detail and included, you'll be fascinated to hear, no doubt, an average of two kilos of meat per person per day It nowhere mentions eggs, fruit, vegetables, bacon, jam, or pickles. Now, that doesn't mean that people didn't eat them. They were dietary staples, all right. The point is that people didn't buy them. They produced them for themselves. It tells you, by the way, what was the origin of the quarter-acre section. It was enough land to contain a small cottage and a garden you could live off if you had to. That takes on even more significance if you're familiar with the nature of the 19th century New Zealand labour market. Until the 1930s, about a third of all workers were employed in New Zealand in rural areas, as rural labourers. And that meant that a great deal of the work was casual or seasonal. The same pattern, although not to the same extent, pertained in the towns. Many jobs that we would now regard as permanent or full time were casualised, some of them by the day. So working families expected some periods of unemployment, particularly at a time when there was no welfare state and when periodic economic downturns were regarded simply as acts of God and treated much more fatalistically than we would treat them post Keynes. Having a large vegetable garden and some laying hens were important backups to the home economy. Now, this is actually a fascinating example of a genetic cultural principle which has been widely commented on, which is that if people are denied their culture, they will reinvent it in another form. For centuries, the working people of Britain had relied upon a tradition of market gardening, which was not only central to their rural domestic economy, but to their culture. When the disruptions of first of all, the industrialization of Britain, and then the growth of international specialization in food production, made that gardening culture untenable, they left in large numbers to escape the consequent impoverished hardship of their lives. And when they got to wherever they were going, in this case, New Zealand, (coughs) they recreated that culture as fast as they could go. They did that from the very outset, even before the treaty, the European settlers were taking advantage of the abundant access they had to food resources. Edward Jerningham Wakefield, son of the more famous Edward Gibbon Wakefield, in his very racy and readable book, Adventure in New Zealand, describes the interior of a shore whaling station, in which he draws particular attention to this, including a number of hams smoking in the chimney. Clearly, these working people enjoyed a much more comfortable life than they would ever have done in England. And he subsequently described one of the working class areas of town, in this case, Wellington, he said, the workers used, used to work at their little patches of ground after the labor of the day was over. And Wade's Town, which had before looked a very bleak hill of poor soil and denuded timber by the clearing of former years, soon boasted a population of 200 working people, whose neat cottages and smiling cultivations peeped from every nook among the picturesque hills. I'm not sure how the present-day inhabitants of Wade's Town would respond to a description of them as quaint and picturesque workers. But, but you get the picture, which was seconded by William Mean Smith, who was one of the New Zealand Company agents, who, writing to his father in 1841, referred to the abundance of lettuces and endive, radishes, mustard and cress, potato and pumpkins. In fact, from the early 1840s in Wellington, there was a nursery garden at the foot of Nan Street, which is about 100 yards from where I live in what is now central Wellington, from which many of these plants were propagated. Some two decad- decades later, Lady Anne Barker, in her famous Station Life in New Zealand, a very evocative memoir of life in, in early colonial New Zealand, described a typical day's eating by her shepherds and other farm hands. Porridge for breakfast with new milk or cream. To follow, mutton chops, mutton ham or mutton curry, or broiled mutton and mushrooms. Not shabby little fragments of meat broiled, but beautiful tender steaks off the leg. Tea or coffee and bread and butter with as much new laid eggs as we choose to consume. Then for dinner at half past one, we have soup, a joint, vegetables and a pudding. In summer, we have fresh fruit stewed instead of a pudding with whipped cream. We have supper about seven, but this is a movable feast consisting of tea again, mutton cooked as some form of entree, eggs, bread and butter and a cake of my manufacture. And she goes on to explain half apologetically that because her fruit trees and bushes are not yet fully grown, she can't yet do the jams and preserves that would probably also be served at some other farming stations. (coughs) There are two immediately interesting things about that menu. First of all, it bears no relation to the steerage class rations on the immigrant ships which these workers had come on. But it does bear a great similarity to the food eaten in the first class. And secondly, there's no class distinction. Lady Barker and her workers eat the same menu. That same message comes through in the letters of the working class settlers themselves writing home. For example, Grace Hurst, farming in the Taranaki in 1858, writes to her sister in England, we have almost everything within ourselves. That's to say, we provide our own food. Milk, butter, eggs, flour, potatoes, ducks, fowls, vegetables, and fruit. Louisa Johnson, who landed at Dunedin in October 1874, wrote back to her friends at the village of Granborough, I wish you all would come. Joe says he will get you all a meal such as you never had at home. Two years later, Michael Cook, a farm labourer had settled at Geraldine and Canterbury writes home to describe his new garden pigsty and says, You said I was to send you word if we kept Christmas up. Of course we do. We had green peas, new potatoes, and roast beef for dinner. And one I particularly liked. George Catley, a shoemaker, writes home, this is the place for beefsteaks and mutton. What with one good thing and another, I am getting quite stout (laughs) and have every reason to like this country. But perhaps most tellingly of all, we listen to the voice of George Tapp, writing home from the Taranaki and previously an official of the Kent Agricultural Laborers Union. He said, working people don't eat sheep's and bullock's head or liver here. They eat the best joints as well as the rich. Well, what you've been witnessing as I've progressed through my narrative is, in fact, the birth of the egalitarian society, which has characterized this country, notwithstanding the spiritual descendants of the likes of Martha Adams, to return the rest of us to a metaphorical steerage. And what you've been seeing it through is, of course, the medium of food. Paradoxically, it has occurred through the conjunction of two contradictory processes, which go to make up the overall process of change and adaptation. I said earlier that those who had denied their culture will sooner or later invent it in a new form. The British immigrants who came to New Zealand in the 19th century were suffering from a sense of loss. They felt strongly the prior existence of a land of content that someone had taken away from. Whether it actually existed or not is neither here nor there. It was the sense of unjust deprivation, of something rightfully theirs which had been stolen from them that induced the most aggressive and vigorous of them to get up and go in the first place. One of the things they recalled from the past was that they had had enough to eat. That may or may not have been true either, but it was remembered as as something which was true, which comes down to the same thing in the end. This is the process we call emigration. It was one of the most significant defensive mechanisms the British working people, deprived of their culture, could find to reclaim it. Their rulers, by the way, knew this and hated it. The story of emigration from Britain is literally full of tales of how those same rulers, again literally, chased after some of their workers who were planning to emigrate and tried to stop them. Not always, of course, one thinks of the highland clearances, for example, but often enough. Mostly, our forebears got away. And one of the things they were getting away from was hunger and malnutrition. When they arrived at a place where that need no longer be an issue, they stopped. In our case, there was nowhere else to go anyway, (laughs) unless you had a taste for penguins. (laughs) But here's the strange paradox. Once they had the abundance, what were they going to do with it? They'd been deprived of it long enough to have forgotten the immediate solution to that problem, but they knew or remembered enough to know it as a rural tradition of butter and eggs and cream. These were mainly country people and thus culturally closer to Jane Austen than they were to Charles Dickens. And they'd seen for themselves what plenty meant when it came to eating. At the Harvest Home, on Market Day when the farmers ordinary was served for midday dinner, and what the cabin passengers ate on the voyage out. So they didn't wait to be asked twice. They simply got on with inventing the pavlova and the lamington and eating meat three times a day and so invented a whole new culture of food, which was to last in this country for over a hundred years and which in many ways is still with it. As I said at the outset, you can uncover the nature of a whole society through observing what it eats and the historical reasons why it does so. And on that note, I rest my case.
0: Food for thought. Just picking up when we we heard Tony in Wellington at the Turnbull, it was an an automatic response. I said to Naomi, there's our keynote speaker, there's our subject... For next year's festival, food for thought, and in some cases, thought for food, especially for the steerage passengers. Thank you very much, Tony, for your erudite and illuminating address. Thanks for listening to Going West audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.